1: Hello there, welcome to a brand new Arsblog ArsCast right here on Arsblog.com. Hope you're well. I really do. Honestly, I hope you're well. Because I'm not. I've had such a fucking pain in the whole of a day. I can't even begin to explain. The the trials and tribulations of Arsenal pale into insignificance after the shit I put myself through uh, for no good reason, other than I like shiny new things. And when Apple released a brand new operating system, an upgrade, free El Capitan, I'm like, yeah, I'll have some of that. Cleverly, cleverly, before I did it, I backed up. I copied everything over uh, to my hard disk, uh, my cloned hard drive. So if it all went wrong, I could I could reboot off that, set the download going. These things usually take a while. So uh, I left it overnight came up the next morning it's all done it's completed there's this kind of fancy new screen I'll log in and I was looking at it going oh this is taking a bit longer than it than it probably should but it's just installed a brand new system it probably needs to you know update the WhatsApp and twiddle as evil and and everything else that goes on with those kind of things I thought, that's fine I'll give it I'll give it a moment or two Moment or two, just a few minutes. Okay. Well, you know what? I'll get my laptop and I'll just, I'll just get a start on the blog using the laptop, and then eventually it logged in. And then I was going, but that's that doesn't look very good. None of that stuff is is right. And then essentially, essentially, the whole thing is bollocksed, like absolutely fucked, completely and utterly fucked. And it turns out, thank you to Mark Blondall, Blondall. I think Blondahl is is the right uh, pronunciation. Not that I'm up on my Scandinavian pronunciations whatsoever, uh, but anyway, he he's been helping me throughout the day. Uh, and uh, turns out that the program with with which I used to make the clone of the hard drive, my safety net, apparently that's not compatible with the new operating system. So when I tried to boot up off the clone to to make everything better, it just went even more wrong. Eww. God. So everything is on there. So I'm in the process of, still, it's now, what time is it? Seven o'clock in the evening. Seven o'clock. I've been at this, sitting at my desk this morning since half past six, looking at this computer that doesn't work anymore, which is a real pain. And this is a fairly hastily, unprofessional, thrown-together arse cast because everything, everything that I need for the Rscast cast is on... The other computer, not on my laptop. Uh, I had to do an interview earlier on. I couldn't figure out how to get my main audio, my main microphone, hooked up to the laptop. I managed to do that now, as you can hear. But when you when you get the uh, the interview a bit later on, I'm using this kind of this kind of weird USB little small USB mic thing. So it sounds sounds kind of strange, like I'm talking out of a bucket and stuff like that. Uh, there's no music, as you'll have noticed. No music. Those of you who uh, enjoy the Arscast theme tune, it's not there. None of the other stuff is there. All my bits, all my things that I need, they're all there, along with everything else that I have on the computer. And I'm hoping that the backup I have really works, because like everything, everything is on this, and it seems like the only way to fix it is to wipe the internal hard drive and then... Uh, hope that the clone disc that I made works when I roll back to the previous operating system. And I'm really sorry if this is terrible and geeky and you don't understand what's going on. But just it's shit. It's bad. If I could compare it uh, in a tech way to anything else, it's Arsenal's defending the other night. It's Ospina's goalkeeping the other night. It's Fabianski against Porto. It's Almuni against West Brom. It's fu- it's just shit. Really, really shit. And kind of depressing. Because you, you realise after a while that... Pretty much your whole life exists on these machines. This iMac in front of me here, everything I do and everything I need to do and everything I need to have, everything that I've written, all my sort of backup files, stuff that I haven't published, my great unfinished novel is on that machine. And if I don't have it, you know, I'm pretty pretty fucked. And that's not really a healthy place to be, is it? so reliant on a machine, some... Some metal and wire and glass and bits of plastic and transistors and capacitors and all those kind of things. Chips, microchips. What's going on? Like everything that I need in my life, apart from, you know, the love of family and friends and strange ethereal concepts like that, everything is on this machine. And without the machine, it's like, what the fuck do I do? So you've got to maybe reassess your life. There were points today, I have to say, where I considered destroying it, throwing it out a window, uh, kicking it. Those of you who remember uh, years ago, uh, a TV program called Why Don't You, which used to be on the BBC kids' program, and they had this kind of cartoon intro, and there was this slacker kid sitting in front of the television, and uh, the end of the theme tune is him just, like, kicking his foot right through the television screen. I felt like doing that thought about setting it on fire, thought about tying it to the back of the car like it was just married and driving off, punching it, headbutting it, pretty much everything. And that's not healthy either, is it? You don't want to be that dependent on a machine. I was going to go live in a forest somewhere, just sort of in a hut. Sure, I might have to exist on squirrel meat and whatever. Well, you know, what's, what's the worst that can happen? Occasionally a tree might get hit by lightning, but it's not as if, you know, my my bush is going to crash. You know, you're one with nature. You're not dependent on man or technology or any of that stuff. You have what you need. You forage for what you want. Life is simple. Okay, it's cold and wet, miserable, dirty. Your life expectancy would probably slump. But, you know, you wouldn't have to be worrying about machines and computers and all that kind of stuff. Or football. Fucking football. What the fuck was that the other night? Jesus Christ. Come on. How annoying are we? Just when you think we couldn't be any more annoying, we get more annoying. Just when you think there's no other way that we can make life difficult for ourselves or or really annoying for the fans, we manage to find a way. It's almost like a fucking talent at this point. Arsenal should go on Britain's Got Talent. There'd be a guy there with his talking dog, and there'd be a, I don't know, some guy who who can sing like an angel despite the fact that he is essentially a hunchback or something like that. You know the way they like those kind of stories. Look at this guy. He's a fucking freak, but he can sing. Let's all clap. But he looks like a freak. Let's not lose sight of that. So all those people that are there, and then Arsenal will come out, And they'd just be really, really annoying. And they'd win. At least it would be a trophy, I guess. Then we go to Europe's Got Talent. Get knocked out in the round of 16. You know how it goes. But it was uh, really, really quite frustrating to see us do that. Particularly after we'd done so well against Leicester. Played well, four away games on the trot. you come home, it's your first home game uh, in a while. you want to put on a performance, you want to prepare yourself for Manchester United coming up this weekend. you want to you want to consolidate uh, and, and try and build some momentum, and we just fucking oh, stupid goals, stupid goals to concede. Like, we scored two pretty good goals. The first one, Walcott's was, you know, their keeper was a bit shit for that, in fairness. Second goal, really good. Lovely cross by Walcott. Brilliant header by Alexis. He kind of loafed it into the net. There wasn't a header so much as a headbutt on the the ball. And you're thinking, 2-2, here we go. You know, we've put all the pressure on. We brought Ramsey on. The game was very much in our favor. We were on top. And then within 60 seconds of equalizing, we're behind again. It's like they've never heard of footballing cliches at all. The whole game of two halves thing, remember that, at Newcastle? 4-0, then it was 4-4. It's a game of two halves, gentlemen. You've got to stay focused. But apart from that one, there's the whole, you know, it's never more dangerous, or you're never uh, under more threat than after you've just scored which, you know, is bollocks, really, for the most part. But, you know, sometimes it's true, and it was true the other night, and then they scored, and then we couldn't score again. It was it was silly. The whole thing was just silly. And it's the latest in a litany of European nights, which have been essentially a big bag of shit. We have we have form for this. I put it on the blog. We've had many nights where we've lost to opposition that we should have beaten. That's a fundamental weakness. It really is. And also, really, really annoying. But not as annoying as my computer was today, so that's taken my mind off it. So those of you who are particularly vexed by Arsenal this week, I would suggest installing some really dodgy software on your own computer, or your phone, or whatever it might be, whatever electronic device you depend on. Make shit of it. And then spend all day trying to fix it, uh, and it will make you forget your Arsenal woes. So there you go. It's an easy solution. But anyway, look, um, we're going to talk now to Rory Smith from The Times uh, about midweek action, about David Ospina, about his selection over Petr Cech, about our European nights, things that have gone wrong. As I mentioned, this was recorded via this, uh, this other strange microphone here. Uh, so the sound quality will be a little bit different, but I'm pretty sure you guys aren't going to be picky. You know, given on all that, it's been such a disastrous day for me, and I'm still here, still here for you, Presenting you with a pretty ramshackle podcast, it has to be said today, but a podcast nonetheless. So there. So look, let's do it. Let's talk to Rory Smith from The Times. How are you doing? Good. Um... Can we start midweek then with Champions League and Arsenal in a game that they were expected to win in Europe, uh, kind of blew it again, and it's not the first time, it won't probably be the last time, and the third time inside 12 months that Arsenal have conceded three goals at home to uh, to opposition that they were expected to beat?
2: Yeah, it's, it's almost like a pattern, isn't it? The, mm-hmm. um, there, there were definitely echoes against Olympiathos of the, of the, the Monaco game in the way that, Arsenal kinda of got themselves back into it and you, you looked at it and thought, right now this is when you, you kind of you have a bit of calmness, a bit of composure and you crack on and win it. Because Olympiacos, though they they play quite well, you know, they, they, they lose away from home and the Champions League is kind of their thing. That's what they do. But Arsenal just didn't have that any sense of composure just after Olymp- after they equalised for the second time. And they, they were completely wide open. The space for the third goal, which was a well worked goal, was, was it sounds kind of overblown but was basically criminal you shouldn't be doing that in the Champions League it was utterly ridiculous and the fact that it keeps happening to Arsenal for all that Wenger tends to say oh it's bad luck it's, you know, it's just unfortunate it's a momentary lapse when that keeps happening it's not luck it's not a lapse it's something systemically wrong Mm. With the way the team is set up or the way the team thinks, have you? Uh,
1: yeah, I don't think you can you can call it bad luck at all. When it keeps happening, you can put you can put it down to bad defending, bad goalkeeping, of course, uh, you know, and bad organisation, bad game management uh, from from a team that really should be much more able to deal with things like that. This is Arsenal's 18th or 19th season in the Champions League, and obviously the personnel change, but w- w- the way that they're sent out um, seems to suggest that there's something lacking there.
2: Well, yeah, I if sort of, I read the piece that you, that you wrote this morning that, that sort of detailed all of the, the, the weird setbacks that Arsenal have had, even the, the very best sides they've had under Wenger, they've had these, these weird results in Europe where they, they just kind of, they seem, whether it's complacency, whether it's that, that, that I think has to be part of it, they, they are so used to being the best team on the pitch that they, they sometimes forget that they actually have to beat the opposition and that even if they're better than the opposition, that doesn't mean that the opponents don't have any merits whatsoever. Mm. But you go back through the through to Orchere, through even the AC Milan, the 4-0 and the San Siro, which was a weird result that so that was not a great Milan side, as Arsenal then proved at the Emirates, but didn't quite prove it enough, if you see what I mean. And And you're right, the fact that the personnel changes does kind of direct you to the manager, because he's the one thing that doesn't change. And with with all the the evidence available, it's not the players, because the players, as you say, over the last 20 years have obviously changed an an enormous amount several times. The fact that it keeps happening makes you think that the the problem must kind of lie with, with the person who's putting those players together.
1: And it's it's becoming apparent, obviously, to to other teams as well. And you reference it in a, in a piece that you wrote today about Arsene Wenger's approach in Europe and if it's flawed. And Cambiaso was talking about how they had to play. And Dinamo Zagreb, their, their their coach was saying, "Look, we've seen how teams set up against Arsenal and get success against Arsenal." And you know, you don't. I think people watching at home could say, "Well, if I had to put a team out to play Arsenal,
2: this is how I'd do it." Yeah, you'd have a fair idea, wouldn't you? Without yeah. question, I, I, I thought what Mamich said after the Zagreb game. It kind of got lost because, well, because it was all on Mamich and no one's heard of him, so the newspapers tend not to report it. But what he said, I thought, was really interesting. You very rarely hear managers speak with that kind of honesty, that frankness, really, that, where he just said, you know, we, we've seen how teams beat Arsenal, and we we know how to beat Arsenal, and not not every team in Europe has the players to do it. And obviously, if Arsenal play well, they have the, they have the capability to beat most sides. But if they don't, if they don't click other teams know where their weaknesses lie and I think the, the, kind of the one thing about we talk, when we talk about like tactical managers and managers who change it, people like Mourinho and Benitez and people like that, none of them are perfect obviously, that they all have their flaws and they all get things wrong sometimes but it, there must be an advantage when you're playing a team of knowing roughly what they're going to do, if you can't be certain that has to put you at a disadvantage, If you if you can name your side and tell your side we are pretty sure this is how they're going to play this is pretty sure where their weaknesses are we are pretty sure this is how we might be able to beat them. That gives you a huge advantage. And although Vendors started showing a little bit more flexibility in the league, as we saw Dieter uh, had last season, which was a very unArsenal performance and a very unArsenal win in Europe, he doesn't seem to have been able to do that yet. And they, they are still the same side that they were five years ago, ten years ago, fifteen years ago. Who are a very good team, got a lot of talented individuals, but have these obvious Achilles heels that,
1: that decent sides can exploit. Yeah, is it a case that football, perhaps over the last few years, has become a bit more tactical, more scientific? And a man like Arsene Wenger, you're not a top flight manager for 30 years without knowing what tactics are and how to implement them. Yeah. But but as the game has gotten faster and quicker and there's more science involved, there's more analysis Post game and pre game, where you can see what, what players are, are capable of uh, and what where they're best, perhaps. That you know, his age in itself is becoming uh, not a hindrance per se, but, but there are other guys who, who have more uh, more new in this particular area, perhaps.
2: Well, I think what, we, what what's always been the case, certainly for the last sort of six or seven years, is that the very best teams in Europe have, know how to be. You know, they know they know their way around Arsenal. They they can. If you have Barcelona, Bayern Munich, Real Madrid, those sorts of sides they know how to beat Arsenal, and that's fine. And I think it's, it's actually, to me, I, I may well be completely wrong, but the thing, my suspicion, I guess, is that in Psychonomics, Simon Trooper and Stefan Schmanstein's book, they talk about the um, the knowledge centre of football being in Western Europe, and how gradually, the closer you are to that knowledge centre, the more likely it is that you are aware of best practice. And that the reason that it looks like the football world is getting smaller, is there's more and more countries now, in Europe, even smaller nations like Croatia, have access to all of that information they have access to the same systems to the same scouting reports the same kind of databases they, they know the training methods they've they've been to observe at you know Real Madrid at Bayern wherever they know how to do these things there's no there's no naive teams in Europe and you, you've you seen it in, in international football where Iceland and Slovakia are, are competing with the big countries So they have access to all of the same methods all the same methods that Spain do mm. and I think in, in the Champions League it's the same thing that, yeah, look, Dino Zagreb aren't a great side. They're OK. They've got some decent players. But they, they have a coach and they have a coaching staff who will know all of this stuff. They who know how to do all of this stuff. who know how to set a team up. There's no naive sides out there anymore. So you you can't, it's a horrible cliche, but there are no Easter Games at all. <laughs> there are only teams who know roughly what they have to do and who have just as much information as you do. They maybe don't have the players that you do, but everything else they have. And if your players don't click, the, the gaps are still so fine, even between Dinamo Zagreb and Like Dinamo Zagreb are putting, they put 11 players out who are all really good at football. And if Arsenal don't quite click, then Zagreb are good enough to take advantage of them because they know how to take advantage of them. And I think that's what's happening. And the reason it's so pronounced with Arsenal is because, don't no matter what I said before, they're always the same. And if they're always the same, then Zagreb and NPR class aren't thinking, well, maybe they'll do this and maybe they'll do that. So we have to be aware of, to be aware of A, B and C. They're just thinking, well, this is what Arsenal will do. So if we do this, it might work. Yeah. And that's, that's a huge advantage.
1: Sure is. And uh, yeah, well, it looks like uh, teams are doing that more and more often these days as well. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about players. Uh, I wanna co- I'll want come to Ospina in a moment. But I just, something that struck me was. Um, When Arsene Wenger didn't make any more signings this summer, leaving aside the fact that he couldn't find players that he wanted, apparently, uh, it it was a tacit admission that he had enough faith in these players to go out and do what he wanted his team to do this season. And that means, obviously, compete in the Premier League and, and compete in Europe. And on the one hand, there's something to be said for a manager. Uh, showing faith in players uh, and giving them belief and confidence that he uh, he then instills in them. But is there also something that perhaps if players aren't necessarily threatened enough for their own place that that they can become perhaps just a little bit complacent, even subconsciously that it can affect performances.
2: Yeah, I mean it, it, it varies from player to player. To be fair, like some some players you speak to and they say like they really relish that competition and you kind of believe them. And some of them you speak to and they they say they relish, they relish the competition because they have to. But they, you, you can tell it's not true. That there's a lot of players who are kind of more carrot than stick. They need to be told you're going to play every week. Some of the goalkeepers tend to be like that. They feel that they need that rhythm of playing every week. <laughs> um, the thing the thing about about, about Venger's faith, I think, is really interesting, and it's it's the same thing with so many. Wherever you fall on kind of the Venger debate, the endless Venger debate that's been going on, I'm, I'm pretty sure since I was born, about whether he, he should be sat. I'm sure that when I was, I'm, I've been alive for 33 years, I'm sure at the start of it, my mum my and dad would have been talking, well, should I should ask, i get rid of Venga. But the, um, the thing, that so much of what you kind of hold against him are actually quite really admirable qualities. So his faith is the, is, and his loyalty, which is often sometimes of portrayed as stubbornness, and there is a stubborn element to it. But it's a really nice, kind of quality to have that he really believes in these players he said before the Olympiacos game that he could close his eyes and pick any side from his 20 senior players and it would be as strong as his kind of nominal first 11 which is clearly nonsense that's just I mean that, that is not true yeah. obviously it's clearly not true but he genuinely believes that and that's quite a nice thing to think that he believes that he he sees these people every day and he really thinks he sees the best in them absolutely And it's really hard to kind of beat a man up for for having that much trust in people, because it's a lovely, I I wish I did, I wish I wasn't, you know, I could be that sort of uncynical. But I, I do think that kind of, at that level, where, again, the margins are so fine, you have to be kind of ruthless. So Cotterland's the best example, but Cotterland had a brilliant second half of the season last season, far better than everyone in the world, including Francis Cotterland, thought he would have. And Vendor decided not to go and sign a defensive midfielder because he didn't want to interrupt Crockland's development, which is which is a brilliant kind of principle to have, but not, it's not really a game of principles. It's a game of winning trophies and winning leads and winning champions leads. And what you have to do in that case is say, right, Crockland's been brilliant, but if there is a better player than him out there, then to an extent, sod development, the, the, the most crucial thing is a team winning trophies. And the fact that Vendor won't do it, it's really hard to sort of criticise him and you know, claim he's a terrible person for that. But whether it means he's ruthless enough to to win things anymore, that, that I guess, is a million-dollar question. To be honest, the answer at the moment looks like no, he's not. Mm. You need to be more prepared to kind of say, thanks for that, you've done really well, but he's better than you, so we're going for him.
1: So we have this, then, weird situation where he... He uh, bought David Ospina last summer, made him the number one after Chesney went crazy with his smoking in the showers, uh, you know, uh, and then showed some ruthlessness by going out and buying Petr Cech from Chelsea, uh, you know, not not a guy who has any sell-on value by the time he gets to the end of his Arsenal career, but uh, again, okay, we need a better goalkeeper. I'm going to get a better goalkeeper on, on yeah, Tuesday that- night you know he plays he plays Ospina now there was talk of a calf injury uh to to check but some of the guys who are pretty close to, to what happens at Arsenal, uh, some of the reporters have said that, look, Czech would have been fit to play, and this was a, a selection issue. So this is, in a way, almost the reverse of that. Like, it, here's me being ruthless, but I'm going to still show you that I can be loyal, too. It's, it's, uh, yeah, yeah.
2: Well, that's, that's exactly yeah, it, it, it. You're right. The, the signing of check was a very unvendic signing because it, it was ruthless. It was kind of. Ospina did nothing wrong, second half of last season, really. He was fine. He was not the reason that Arsenal didn't win the league. David Ospina, you know, he was perfectly passable in goal. No, I can't. I think there were a couple of kind of, you know, goals where he might have done better, but there was nothing really glaring in, in yeah. memory. Although I may be wrong. And then he goes out and signs chess, and You think, right? That is a sign of proper ruthlessness. That is that is what elite managers do. They say, thank you, but we need to move on. But then Vendors kind of, I don't know. It's almost like he kind of lost his nerve there a little bit and thought, right? Well, I'll keep him and I'll still play him and because I want to show him that he's still really important to me, I'll play him in really important games. So yeah, Czech is not injured. He had a slight calf injury in the warm-up against Leicester, uh, which didn't keep him out of the Leicester game, uh, and therefore obviously would not have kept him out of the the Olympiacos game. Czech signed knowing that Ospina would play in certain games, and he is completely fine with that. There's There's no problem at all. He understands he's going to be rotated. He understands that Ospina is a Colombian international who has to play. I think what, Probably everybody at Arsenal, including Chech, and possibly even Ospina, finds slightly strange is the timing of that decision, that Wenger had said it was a must-win game. He knew that if they lost it, they, they didn't have a real problem qualifying. It's not impossible, but it's, a, it's fairly unlikely. And yet he did it anyway. And it's, it's not that Ospina's a terrible goalkeeper, because he isn't. He's a perfectly good number two goalkeeper, no problem at all. It, you know, David Ospina, again, is not like the weak link in Arsenal squad. But what Wenger did was make a rod for his own back. That as soon as he's right, you know, Chech could have made a mistake. But if Czech makes a mistake, your number one goalkeeper makes a mistake, you get to say he's made a mistake. If your number two goalkeeper who's playing in a game that most people don't think he should be playing in makes a mistake, you have to say, you kind of have to hold your hands up and say, right, well, I've, well, I've made I've made an error here because now he did make a mistake. So it looks like the selection was wrong because ultimately with football, the proof of, pud- of the pudding is in the eating. Yeah. So it's, it was just a very kind of, it was almost typical of Wenger that he's, that he he has done done the ruthless thing, but then he can't quite bring himself to say to conti- almost to continue being ruthless. If you if you see what I mean, he's kind of trying to fudge it a little bit and kind of have his cake and eat it. Yeah, and and make sure that Ospina's is still happy. But to an extent, if Ospina you know if Ospina spends a year and as I say, this is I I don't think Osprey a bad goalkeeper at all. If he spends a year not playing in big games and says at the end of the season, I, I'm I'm really sorry, I want to go because I've, I want to play games. You shake his hand and say, "Fair enough." That's what that's what being a second choice goalkeeper is about. You, and you, you don't get another one because there will always be someone who will be your second choice goalkeeper. You yeah. don't try and kind of keep him happy by putting him in an incredibly important game because if he does make a mistake, basically it kills him. His, what's his confidence going to be like now? Yeah. It's, it's a, it was a really strange decision. Like, yeah, it, it, he's not like an eighteen-year-old kid, but it was just a totally unnecessary risk doing that.
1: Yeah, I mean, if it's the case that Czech wasn't injured, then it's just it's kind of baffling, really. Um, so what about the prospect of Europa League football for Arsenal? Qualification from the group uh, is going to require a big result against Bayern, maybe twice. Uh, and that seems unlikely. There's a prospect then of Europa League, which is a competition that is um, maybe when you spend a long time in the Champions League, people naturally look down their noses at, uh, at the Europa League and see it as the poor relation. It is the poor relation. It's a strange tournament. But is that not the reality of Arsenal's performances and, and the squad that Arsene Wenger has built?
2: Uh, I think it's a Champions League squad, but it is the reality of the performance. Yeah, you you get what you deserve ultimately. And Arsenal haven't been good enough in the first two Champions League games, so there is a chance that there will be a new Europa League. As I say, I'm not quite sure they're finished because a lot of it will depend on how Olympiakos and Dinamo Zagreb share those points. So if if Olympiakos don't win both, then really, unless as you say, unless Arsenal beat Bayern twice, then that might well be Arsenal's goose cut I think I'm um, <clears throat> I'm kind of pro Europa League, which I know is kind of a weird position to hold. But and I took the point that you wrote this morning that you know you, you look down the list of the teams in it and it's Slovan Liberec and Bay Bayreuther and these teams that you don't want to play. But by the last last sixteen quarterfinals, it's a really good competition. There's some really good teams in it. There's some really big trips. There's a lot of ambitious sides who are kind of going well. And by the end of it, I think I think it's probably almost as exciting as the Champions League. It's, it's obviously not as glamorous. The teams obviously aren't quite as good. But to me, for English teams, the, the, the English attitude to the Europa League, whichever team it is it's completely alien to me. It's a trophy. Go and win it. Surely you go and win it. Especially if you're Arsenal, who, you know, f- despite the two FA Cups, need to get back into that habit of-, of winning trophies. So if you do end up in the Europa League, I think snubbing your nose at it and having a kind of, you know, into the-, the worst thing you can do in the Europa League is, like, get to the quarterfinals. You don't, you have an away trip in Russia because you always have an away trip in Russia <laughs> in, the- in the knockout rounds of the Europa League. So you go to Kazan or Vladivostok or somewhere, Mahogka, and you have all the travel, and it, it does impact your lead form, no question. Although Arsenal, I think, probably have the squad to cope, and they are in a lead where they are not below the top four. The quality is quite is quite low, so they should be okay. The worst thing you can do is, is get knocked out in the quarterfinals, because then you get all of the disadvantages without any of the glory or any of the kind of hope or the optimism. I think if, if Arsenal do end up in the Europa League, go and try and win it. Go and see if you can get another trophy, because that then. Well, leaving that aside, they are they're more than equipped to win it, and if if they do win it, they get a place in the Champions League. So yeah, it's kind of a win-win to an extent. Yeah,
1: sure. And you know, it's something that has been a, a feature of Arsene Wenger's uh, career, not just at Arsenal, but European football and European trophies have, have eluded him for the most part. Um, you know, you go back to when Arsenal lost the UEFA uh, Cup final in two thousand to Galatasaray, and then of course it was the the Champions League final. So uh, could it, you know, could it also just perhaps? Provide the club itself with a little bit of a wake-up that okay, we have these big ambitions supposedly. We have these big ideas about wanting to be as big as Bayern Munich, according to Ivan Gazidis. Uh, and all of a sudden, we find ourselves in the in the Europa League, not entirely, but in some way, due to the to the squad that perhaps wasn't added to as much as it should have been in the summer. So maybe perhaps that might
2: um, change a little bit of the thinking. You'd hope so, but then, and you probably know this better than me, uh, wake-up calls and Arsenal do not always seem <laughs> to work, do they? No. That's the problem. It, I, yeah, I know what you mean, That it could well be that, you know, the sight of Arsenal and the Europa League kind of concentrates minds and makes people think, right, we we have to be more, it might make Vendor think we have to be more ruthless, it might make the board put a little bit more pressure on Vendor to say, look, you have to deliver in the Champions League, you've, you've had your kind of one blip, but now that's it, there's no more kind of excuses. But we've been in similar situations before with Arsenal, where you you thought like right, this is the wake-up call. The, the years that they almost missed out on four, where you sort of think this is this is the time that Arsenal has to see this is not working. You need a change of policy, and it didn't happen. So I'm, I'm always slightly suspicious of wake-up calls and Arsenal. But yeah, possibly it could be the case that that being the the, the humiliation in, in the commas, of being in the Europa League might might influence them, or it might be even that winning a European final potentially does something for the club because it. It's still a big competition. It's still a European victory. You still get that, get to savour that sense of triumph, whether it's the Champions League or the Europa League. And as Chelsea would tell you, or Liverpool or whoever, it is It is slightly different winning the, Euro, the, the UEFA Cup than it is winning the Champions League, obviously. But it's still winning something. And ultimately, this is a very old-fashioned That's kind of what it's all about, isn't it? Mm, For sure. I mean, people want trophies. The idea that
1: anyone who supports Arsenal uh, and is perhaps scoffing uh, at the uh, prospect of Europa League football wouldn't be standing and cheering if Alexis banged in a goal from 30 yards to win it
2: is ridiculous, you know? It's about accruing memories. I I forget where the Europa League final is this year, which is terrible. Uh, The Champions League final's in Milan. It'll be in some weird city, Europa League final. But it's, it's that whole sense of occasion of going out to that place of the build-up for two or three days and the fact that you then get to see your team win something, well, all, I, mean, I realise that it's, it, it's slightly anachronistic to think like that, but to me, and I suspect to most fans certainly of my age and your age and mm. older than us, I would, I would guess that the whole kind of just jack it in, don't care, don't care about it, get out as soon as possible, is completely alien to them. I don't understand it. I mm. find it baffling when Spurs do it. I find it baffling when Liverpool do it, when City or Everton do it. So if Arsenal end up in the Europa League, it's a shame because they, they have a squad that belongs in the Champions League. But if they end up in the Europa League, then then go and win it because that's, that's kind of the point. Uh, it's
1: in Basel, by the way, in Switzerland. So there you go. A nice neutral venue. Not, for well,
2: <laughs> well, it's not a great, it's not a great away trip Basel, is it? It's a bit. You'd be better if it in like Tbilisi or somewhere somewhere exotic. <laughs> um,
1: a couple of quick things before we before we wrap it up. Theo Walcott, a goal and an assist against Olympiakos. Um, is he starting to convince as a centre forward?
2: Yeah, but only against specific opposition. I still don't think he's that great at home. The way the team sit deep against Arsenal, for all his many uh, many varied flaws, I think Giroud actually is a more a more effective weapon. Does he holds the ball up better? He he forces that the opposition. He functions better when there's no space. Walcott needs space to run into. I know that's a really sort of basic tactical analysis, but Walcott looks more active in games like Leicester, where he he's afforded space. So I'd be inclined. Certainly, it's like the the bottom half of the Premier League to to play Giroud in the bigger games or away from home I'd, I'd go for wolf but he definitely he's, he seems to have become the striker he always thought he was to an extent
1: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I like that he thought he was brilliant um, and very quickly Manchester United then at the weekend for all the midweek European troubles Arsenal could if results go their way uh, be joined top of the Premier League or, or at least go level with points on Manchester United are United the kind of team that will look at what Arsenal did in midweek and look at them the way that the European opponents have looked at them and, and try and play them accordingly
2: yeah, you'd have thought that Vanhal was smart enough to, to to draft a plan to try and sort of attack Arsenal's weaknesses. Um, and United at Arsenal tend to tend to be fine. To be fair, uh, I was at the Old Trafford on, on Wednesday for the Wolfsburg game. I've seen United, I think, three or four times live now this season. I have no idea if they're any good or not. I'm still completely <laughs> baffled. Like with most teams, you get like, and you know, this this stage is kind of start of October you kind of have an idea, an idea of what, what they're good at what they're bad at and where you kind of think you know are they an 8 out of 10 team a 5 out of 10 team no idea with United they were they were sort of fine for half an hour uh, in the middle and they were crappy the side of it and I've just got i d I'd no idea which one is the real United so it could well be that United turn up and they're incredibly intelligent and Martial's pace which has made a huge difference to them that kind of spearhead that they've got it could be that that gives Arsenal real problems or it could be that United look like the bad United and they're all kind of slow and methodical and they're thinking about things and they're really ponderous and Arsenal who do have that kind of cutting edge, especially in Sanchez, who looks like he's he's back to the electives of last season. That Arsenal beat them and go top and suddenly everything's rosy, which is for a journalist a nightmare. It's impossible to write about Arsenal nowadays because like, we we you know we, we kind of we can stick the knife in on after the, the Olympiacos game but it's the questions that Render has to answer. Well they'll be top of the league by Sunday evening and then, then what do you do? It just makes it. And is this It's some whole piece of performance art trying to make the entire media look stupid, <laughs> which we do not need any help with.
1: Absolutely not. Uh, well, look, it keeps you it keeps you on your toes anyway. So
2: exactly, yeah, I suppose so. Yeah.
1: All right, uh, Rory. Thanks very much indeed for your time. We'll catch you again soon. Pleasure. Thanks very much. Thank you very much indeed to Rory. You can find him on Twitter at Rory Smith Times at Rory Smith Times, uh, and of course you can find him. In the Times. That's where he writes about football. Thank you to him, and we'll have him on again at some point during the season. So, very quickly, uh, because this is a uh, no-frills... No special event kind of RS cast. Just looking ahead very quickly to the game at the weekend against Manchester United on Sunday. They're top of the league, of course, with 16 points. We could also have 16 points on Sunday if everything goes our way. Manchester City on 15 points, so we need them not to win to be like joint top or joint level of the Premier League come Sunday. And, of course, you know, we need to win the game and not lose it and not be fucking assholes either when it comes to defending and, you know, all the, the sort of nuts and bolts stuff of football. That, uh, people expect from a professional football team so there
0: hey y'all it's matt marr here aka maddie and poodle aka jake anthony and we host the podcast 90 day gaze poodle i'm excited because christmas is here aren't you excited bah humbug What's so great about Christmas? I'm just going to get another boring, straight-looking sweater for my Aunt Jane. Well, poodle Scrooge,
2: you tell your Aunt Jane to get you Best Christmas Ever on AMC+. You will love it.
0: Oh, wow. They got all my favorites. Elf, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, The Year Without a Santa Claus. And y'all, AMC Plus is available on all your devices. So celebrate the Best Christmas Ever anytime, anywhere. Sign up today at amcplus.com. Only the good stuff. This holiday season, treat yourself. Treat yourself to candy.
1: The injury news, I guess, is that uh, Lauren Koscielny is going to miss it because he has a a dodgy hamstring. We don't have any official team news yet, but I'm assuming this after what happened on uh, Tuesday night when he limped off uh, on about an hour. Uh, replaced by Um So his hamstring is uh, unlikely to make the grade, so he's going to be out of action. Other than that, we wait for news of uh, Matthew Flamini, and well, I guess he's out as well because he also did a hamstring. Mikel Arteta, I'm not sure. Uh, a thigh injury is what I heard about him. How long it might keep him out, I don't know, but uh, I don't suppose he would have started this particular game anyway, although uh, Cochalan did look a little bit, you know, not 100% fit, didn't he, the other night? As if his knee was giving him some jip. Uh, Olivier Giroux is back from suspension, but apart from that, nobody else really there. So we're kind of missing those guys, aren't we? We're missing Wilshire. We're missing Welbeck. And we're missing the options that they give us. Thomas Orzitski, of course. Thomas Orzitski. I'd forgotten all about Thomas Orzitski. I apologize, Thomas, if you're listening, which you're not. But yeah, you know, you just, you kind of forget. And you, you look at, you look at the bench the other night and we needed a goal and uh, we had Joel Campbell on. And with no disrespect whatsoever meant to Joel Campbell, I think when you're uh, in a situation, in a game, at home, when you need a goal, you desperately need a goal, from, what, 68 minutes was when they scored, so you have 22 minutes plus injury time to go. I think when the manager puts you on in the 85th minute, I think that says pretty much everything you need to know about what he thinks about Joel Campbell and his ability to get something out of a game for us. So it's kind of, um, yeah, it leaves us a bit short, doesn't it, in terms of the bench. Like, if we're going into United, we have Wilshire on the bench, we have Rosicky on the bench, we have Welbeck on the bench. You know, at least there's guys there that can come off and do something. As it is, I guess Theo Walcott's going to start up front. And... um, United will wait and see how they play. They'll probably do it a bit like uh, all the teams that come to us, sit back, make life difficult for us, and uh, try and hit us on the break and and hope that we, you know, shoot ourselves in the foot with a fucking gigantic laser cannon, which we're capable of doing at any moment. So let's hope, you know, at least what happened in, in midweek might just redouble their defensive efforts. This is a game... Maybe that we don't have to win, but we certainly can't lose because the mood is tetchy enough as it is already. And, uh yeah, it's, it'll get a lot worse if we lose to Manchester United on Sunday. I don't feel especially confident, I have to say. But, hey, who knows? I'll be there cheering on the boys. So see some of you in the usual place for a beer before the game and after the game for celebrations or commiserations or whatever it might be. Uh, let's have a beer, eh? Uh, and then on Monday night, of course, it's the Arscast Extra Live bringing you into the interlow. We'll have two weeks without Arsal, so hopefully we go into that on the back of a win. That would be very nice indeed. But feel free to join James and myself and guests in the garage in Highbury and Islington. There's a bar. Come and have a beer on a Monday night. What else are you going to be doing? There's a bar. We'll be talking about Arcel We'll be uh, recording a live Arscast. We'll be taking questions from the audience, our Q&A. It'll be like in real life except not on Twitter. And the advantage of that, of course, is that you don't have to use 140 characters in your questions. So uh, feel free to come along. There are tickets from myticket.co.uk and ctickets.com. Just search for Arscast. That's myticket.co.uk or ctickets.com. Uh, they're £10, and I think there's £1 or something that somebody else takes, and it's got nothing to do with us. So £11. Uh, Monday evening, 6.30, doors open, the garage, Highbury in Islington, Arscast Extra live please feel free to come along. Uh, it'd be great to see you there, uh, and your support will be uh, greatly appreciated by James and myself. So that's about it then for this week's Arscast. Um No fanfare, no music playing out. I think it just is going to just stop, you know, and then that'll be it because, you know, the music is it's good because you know it's over when you hear the music, and, and when there's no music, you, you're just kind of like, well, this is confusing. Is it over? I mean, is it over now? I don't know. So difficult without, without the bits. You know, you need the bits. And then the podcast is over and you know it's over. It gives closure. So maybe you just have to say goodbye. Feels kind of underwhelming, though, just doing that. Could try like a bye-bye. No, that's James's thing. He do, He does that so much better than me. I don't know I don't know how to do it. Maybe we should just you know. Yeah. I'll just do it like this. fuck it. See you on Sunday. Come on, you reds. Beat those cunts. And see some of you on Monday as well for the Arscast Extra live. That's it. G- definitely gone now. Gone. Finished. It's over. Go home. Stop listening.
0: Seriously. Stop. This holiday season, treat yourself. Treat yourself to candy.